You're listening to a podcast by Redeemer Bible Church. Come visit us Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. or visit our website at RedeemerFortBend.org for more information. Thanks and enjoy. Life was good for Jerry Curtis. It's the early 1960s. He was a Houston native member of a faithful church, a Christian. And he always dreamed of flying. He dreamed of the skies. Well, this is the 60s. The Air Force stood up in 47. And they're plussing up pilots as they're looking for this coming Soviet conflict. And he applied and was accepted to the aviation cadet program. He attended training, was successful, and he became a search and rescue helicopter pilot and then was commissioned He came back to Houston. He married his high school sweetheart, and they had a beautiful baby boy. He had the job. He had the girl, the family, the money, the career, the respect, the admiration of everyone. He had a lot to be thankful for, this young Christian did. He was training to serve his country. He was looking to the the World War II heroes, preparing for this Soviet conflict. But this Soviet conflict never came. What what did come was this weird proxy war in Southeast Asia we've come to know as Vietnam. And as the draft numbers scrolled across the TV, the men and women in service were waiting too for that dreaded deployment order to Southeast Asia. The average survival for a young officer going into Vietnam was two tours. And by the end of this conflict, we would bury 60,000 or uh, more than 60,000 of our young servicemen and women. And in the summer of 1965, that order did come for Jerry Curtis, and he was deployed to Northeast Thailand, supporting operations in North Vietnam. He kissed his wife and his young child goodbye, not knowing if he would ever see them again. Well, on September 20th, 1965, an F-103 Thunder Chief, a fighter-bomber aircraft that we used in Vietnam, was shot down over enemy territory. The pilot ejected, but capture was imminent, it was gonna happen. So Captain Jerry Lewis, uh, Curtis, did what he was trained to do. He loaded up in his Husky search and rescue helicopter, uh, joined up with a couple of support aircraft, left their base in Northeast Thailand for North Vietnam. Against all odds, they found their man. Hovering above the, the jungle canopy, they, they, dropped the, they dropped the hoist, they hoisted him up into the helicopter. But then as they were going to leave, shots rang out, small arms fire, from the trees and the helicopter took rounds in its gearbox and its engine. One of the support aircraft was shot down and it sunk to the canopy floor of the jungle. Uninjured, amazingly, they only evaded for a few hours before they were captured on the very same hillside that they had come to rescue this pilot. This was the beginning of a great trial for our brother. Seven and a half years as a POW in a concentration camp. Back in 2010, I spent four weeks up in Washington in a simulated POW concentration camp, and let me tell you, that was enough. I could not imagine spending seven and a half years. Meanwhile, his wife and his child are at home. He doesn't know if they're okay, doesn't know if they, if, if they know that he's even alive. For the first year of this confinement, he spent it entirely in solitary, not contact with another human being for a year. But then having bombings, heavy bombings in North Uh, Vietnam made the Viet Cong government choose to no longer consider them prisoners of war, but outright criminals. 
So they brought him in into the now infamous Hanoi Hilton and committed unspeakable acts of torture to them, things that we can't even talk about this morning. They left him scarred, maimed, paralyzed. So horrible was this experience that him and his fellow comrades would only allow themselves to think of home and their families for an hour a day. To do so otherwise would just be too much. He lost over half his body weight, though he stood over six feet tall. He weighed 110 pounds. And meanwhile, he's watching the death of his comrades, his brothers in arms, these people that he trained with, that he knew, that he loved, not knowing if tomorrow would be his turn and he would never get to go home to his wife and child. But God had not forsaken Jerry. His faith grew and spread. The Christian brothers would sing hymns with one another. They had a code that they would tap on the prison walls and they would tap scripture to one another. Prayer and God carried Jerry along. He found purpose in this trial. The anger that he felt for this government, for his captors, God replaced with love. He was taught God's faithful sovereignty throughout it all. And as he reflects on this, he says he would not change at all. And he counted it as joy. Well, the Paris Peace Talk started in 1972. And in 1973, February 12th, the C-141 carried Jerry Curtis back to the United States where he was reunited with his wife and son. His wife had waited and prayed for him faithfully for seven and a half years. The young boy that he kissed goodbye in 1965 was now 15. Captain Jerry Curtis and his brothers defined what it meant to be a hero in this new Air Force and codified what it meant to return with honor. Well, he continued his career and he retired a colonel and he's still alive and he lives in Temple, Texas. And every year or so, he'll travel up to squadron officer school in Alabama. This is a school that everybody who's a captain that wants to become a major has to go to the school and most of the time they force them to do it in residence there in Alabama. And that's where I met him firsthand and heard this story from him 2014. This is not a Christian environment, let me tell you that. It is very secular. But apparently, after you're a POW for seven and a half years and an Air Force hero, they give you a little card that says you can show up to any Air Force function you want and say whatever you care to. And he shows up at squadron officer school once or twice a year and basically preaches a sermon. He spent two and a half hours extolling God's faithfulness in the gospel in front of 800 captains, another generation of Air Force officers. At some point, I was, like, I, I was waiting for the, for the secular police to run down the aisles and tackle this man. Like, this was, it was so out of place. It was, it was so wonderful. And at the end, like they do for all the speakers at these things, they open up the microphones on either side, and you can come up and you can ask these people questions. And... Um, there is a young man amongst many of the questions who is an F-16 weapons school grad. This means that if you're at that point in your career and you have those things knocked out, he's probably one of the 10 best pilots, young pilots in the Air Force. This dude's career is laid out for him. He'd probably have to rob a bank not to at least become a colonel. So he's up there in front of the microphone and he asks Colonel Curtis a question. He says, sir, I am an atheist. What would you say to somebody like me? I'm an atheist. I don't believe you just spent two hours saying how God and, and your faith got me through this. Did you see another atheist? Was there somebody else who was an atheist in this camp that you can relay what, what they did, how they, how they processed this? And he looked at this rich young ruler of the Air Force, and you could kind of see the tears well up in his eyes, and he, he pursed his lips like, like wise old men do, and he said, son, there are no atheists in a POW camp. 
And in pure love, he said, I pray that someday you come to the end of yourself and you find Christ. The passage that Colonel Curtis spoke on that day was James 1, and it is our passage this morning. We're going to look at the context of James, and then our first point will be the surety and the joy of trials. The second point will be having wisdom in the midst of trials. And our third point will be the kingdom purpose of trials. This is a hard, sensitive topic, but keep in mind, we're driving toward verse 12. We're driving toward hope, and that's where James is taking this. Our first point, again, is the surety and the joy of trials. Picking up in verse 1, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion. So we have to look at a lot of context here to really understand what's being said here. First, the context of James himself. This is James, the brother of Jesus, through Mary, who came to trust in Christ and became a believer after Christ's death, death and resurrection. He is the leader of the church in Jerusalem, one of the first uh, leaders of the early church. This may be one of the earliest writings we have. You'll notice that it's in the back of the New Testament here, but really it's being distributed and being sent out to the church about the same time as the Gospels, probably after Matthew. But there's a reason why we just completed a series in Matthew, and now we're going into James, because the context matches. And it's circulating around, and these are the same type of letters that these different churches are getting. And more importantly, James really knew Jesus. He knows how to live like them. In the early church and at this time, when they probably had little writing from the apostles, his perspective to the early church, the importance of who he is, the leadership, and what he's telling them cannot be understated. And then you've got to put yourself in the context of James. What is he dealing? It is a hard time. Christ died and rose again not too long ago. He's a Jew writing to Christian Jews and sees Christ as the, as the Jewish Messiah, but there's persecution and disorder. And he is the godly pastor in the Jewish capital, kind of the acting de facto leader of this fledgling church. They have no Bible, but the faith is being pulled. They have these Judaizers that are trying to make it part of what they do, uh, a part of, of the Jewish, old Jewish faith, of the old Jewish law. They have, they have pressures from the pagans. They have pressures from everything. And he's dealing with this dispersion we see in verse 1. So we read, pick up about uh, on that uh, here in Acts chapter 8 and verse 1. And there arose that day a great persecution, much the church, in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except for the apostles. So we see this first step of the church growth model. As you read through Acts, you can see that the church is planted, it grows, it's persecuted, it disperses, it grows, it's persecuted, it disperses. This is the model that we see over and over that spread the church all throughout the known world. Now, we, um, he wrote this letter, and we read it as, as Gentiles with the benefit of a complete Bible. But it's important to understand that this is before Paul. It almost needs to be read like a gospel in that the audience is a whole, more, a whole lot more general to the entire church as it existed at that time. Well, there's also a global setting. This is the budding of the golden years of the Roman Empire. We have global trade, like real global trade, not just one, one node pushing things out. We have property rights. We have roads. We have order, at least for the Romans, but there's a huge wealth gap, and not like a Western wealth gap like we see today where you know, we, we have to, to budget our money, but the billionaires live like crazy. You had the billionaires living like crazy, but you had the vast majority of the Roman Empire, those that were outside of the circle of Rome, not knowing when their next, where their next meal was going to come from. And the commoners in the outside jurisdiction, jurisdiction of the Roman Empire suffered while Rome prospered. 
And the rich were doing what the rich do. What do the rich do? They, they spend money on themselves. They travel. They, they buy things. They read themselves in. They self-actualize. They, they become gods unto themselves. And they're watching this while they starve. He's writing these poor Christians being oppressed by the powerful and the wealthy. And, and persecuted by everyone. Persecuted by everyone. The Jews didn't like him. Certainly the Romans didn't like him. The pagans didn't like him. There was nobody really on their side. In the meantime, they have little access to teaching, and they have kind of fractured and incomplete leadership. The poor early Christians were impressed by this entire system. But the early church envied it all. They wanted it. They loved Christ, but they, liked, they wanted power and wealth. They loved Christ, but suffering was hard. They loved Christ, but they knew little of his church. They felt alone, isolated, maybe even crazy. Like, what have I done? We, I've, I've thrown myself on this new, newfangled religion, but, but everything is, is working against us. I've lost so much. They have no letters, letters from Paul. And as we read at the very first part of uh, chapter 8, Paul is still trying to kill them. He might be the very guy leading the dispersing forces here around Jerusalem. The foundational applicability of the book of James is that we live in a world not unlike the world of James. It is full of trials. It's hostile to our faith. Our faith is being torn doctrinally in different directions. But on the backdrop of all of this is a world that is endlessly tantalizing. It is tempting. And here we pick up in verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that, this, that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. What a statement. Count it all joy. It's shocking. He doesn't pull the point punch. Not only that, but, but it's not a specific time of type of trial. It's various. It's all of them. It's the frustrations. You're late to work. And the kids don't do what they're supposed to do. The pipe breaks. The car won't start. Disappointments. Didn't get that promotion. Didn't get the assignment that you wanted. Didn't get the part on the team, the part in the school play. Scarcity. There are people around this world, Christians, that don't know where their next meal is coming from. And certainly, Financial resources are always tight. There's tight. There's uh, sickness, physical trials of sickness, acute and chronic. We just got done with COVID largely, and we had people in this church that suffered greatly due to that. And then you have the chronic diagnosis, diagnosis of a, of a chronic disease. Changes everything that leads to sickness and death. Someone, that, someone dies. Big hole in your life that's never, ever filled again. And then we have the trials of temptations, the things of this world that didn't seem so enticing yesterday are now enticing. We want them. And, and it's, it's, it's unbelievable. It is, it is a trial. And we have the persecution. Here in the United States, we see this cropping up more and more, but certainly abroad, we have Christians, as we speak right now, in jail in situations not that much different than Captain Curtis. And how are we to respond? With joy. Well, what does this mean? What does this joy look like? Is it an emotional high? Is it a giddiness, some sort of weird masochism? No, if you look into the Greek, it's normally typically translated joy or gladness, but it has an element of calm delight, a long-term contentment and peace that results in a teachable heart. The way that Captain Curtis allowed God to work on his heart in reference to his captors is a great example. And then the audience, he's writing this to Jewish church leaders near Jerusalem. 
And you imagine what that might feel like. Limited communication. They don't, they're not, they're not, they don't have a whole Bible. They don't, they're not even probably getting all these letters. Maybe they heard of Pentecost, saw Pentecost. And they're dealing with legalism of the Jew, from the Jews. Paganism, mindset of, of transactional religion, of appeasement of the gods. A great example of this is John chapter 2, verse 2. It says, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned this man or appearance that this man was born blind? Great little snippet right here. We see, we see these people, we see the, the disciples seeing a man who's blind and says, well, why is he blind? Who sinned? How, how, how in the world is it? There's, clearly there's a, a transactional reason behind this. And these are not the religious elite. These are not the Pharisees, the Sadducees. It's not the Sanhedrin. This is Christ's own disciples. And we're not talking about John chapter 2. We're talking about John chapter 9. So they've walked with him for a while, and they still have this mentality. Likely this is pervasive in the church. They love Christ, but their understanding of Christ was limited. And their lives are full of trials. Christ was to be the answer. Maybe he wasn't going to make the Romans go away. Maybe he wasn't going to start an uprising, but at least he would solve the suffering. At least he would get rewarded. And what we see here, I think we have the same question that this church leader would have. Joy is gloriously countercultural. James, the master of Christ's character, the one who probably knew him best, says joy. And this stands in stark contrast to the world in which they live. The Greco-Roman world says appease the God, the gods. Follow the rules better. Our world says get angry. Find somebody to blame it on. Escape into drugs, narcotics, entertainment, anything to make it go away. But the Christian relying on Christ finds joy. And why? Verse 3, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. We take joy not in the experience but in what the trials do and the hope that we have. What do they do? They produce steadfastness. Sometimes this is, in, this is translated to endurance or patience. This is a noun that is repeated throughout the Bible, throughout the New Testament, as the character of the Christian's faith. We see it in, James, in Romans 5, 2 Corinthians, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, 1 and 2 Timothy, Hebrew, Titus, 2 Peter, Revelations. We don't have time to go through all of these, all of these uh, references, but suffice it to say, this is a very important word. It represents an unwavering reliance of God, a willingness to submit, to bend the knee to His will. The Bible says that our faith should be characterized by these things. And when steadfastness has had its full effect, what does it produce? Perfection. Perfection. Well, part of this is, sure, a sense of, of, of ultimate perfection and glory, the believer's final state. But there's also um, this verb or, or this, um, <clears throat> this word is used to describe a completeness, a doneness. Think of a, a pie. You put a pie together, you, make up, you, you mix all the ingredients, you construct the pie, you put the pie in the oven, it comes out done. Is it, the, is it absolutely perfect? Is it without blemish? Well, well, no, but it is a complete product. It has become what it has been designed to become. And that's the character here that's being laid out here by James. And trials are God's tool to get us there. We're to look for God's purpose in trial. A sense that we should be excited that we are being perfected and seek to be teachable. And we are to respond, to respond to humility and be open to the things that draw us closer to God. When I went to that SEER training in Washington back in 2010, they, they allowed us to have Bibles. 
I didn't even ask to bring our own Bibles, but they issued us a Bible. And this is four weeks of wear and tear on this Bible. That situation drew me close to Christ. Think of the times when you have prayed, when you have read regularly, when you were close to Christ. What was, what was happening in your life? You can see God work. Embrace that. And to this end, trials are sure because they are, they are the means. The Bible says when, not if. We saw in the reading, 1 Peter 4.12, Beloved, do not be surprised when the fiery trouble comes upon you to test you as though something strange was happening to you. They will happen. We should not be surprised. It spells it right out. And we are going to completion. What does a complete Christian look like? Not a Christian that doesn't sin, but a sanctified believer of maturity. Think of Colonel Curtis, some 80 years old, standing in front of that room of captains. Suffice it to say, I don't think there's a whole lot left in this world that's going to shake his belief in God. Have you ever known a really mature believer? I have, and their character is, is absolutely defined by steadfastness, endurance, patience, a peace, a patient, unshakable reliance on Christ and an inner confidence in his will. Well, we have another reason for joy. Take heart because over all of this is God. John uh, 16, says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Our Lord has overcome all of this. Every trial must be permitted by him. Every trial can only stay as long as he permits. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says, No temptation has overtaken you except it is common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Every trial exists to his ends, and his ends are good. Romans 8, 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. In Romans 5, 3, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that our suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. The kid, my kids will tell you that one of my favorite books of the Bible is Job. I find it one of the most encouraging Bibles, books of the Bible amidst trials. I'm going to read here uh, just a couple of verses at the beginning of chapter 40, verse 2, and then 6 through 9. 6 through 9. Shall the fault fighter contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you will make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you might be in the right? Have you an arm like God? Can you thunder with a voice like his? Think of the context here. Everything is gone from poor Job. He's lost his money. He's lost his position, his marriage, his, every, every, all of his possessions. He has lost his physical wellness, and he's sitting in a dirt ditch. And this is, how this is how God responds. We are to read this with hope. God's not beating him over the head. He's saying, look, look, Job, I am bigger than all of this. You can trust me. I know these things. He continues for five chapters this way. I would encourage you guys to open up uh, Job and just read 40 through 45. It is incredibly, incredibly encouraging. And he couldn't possibly know, Job couldn't have possibly known the kingdom purposes for the suffering that he had. But God had a purpose. God knew what was going on. He was over all of it. 
and we will find more hope as we look through these trials and through Job's perspective here toward verse 12 here in James. Christian, do you, are you, do not be surprised by trials. They are sure. We are to respond to joy with trials with joy. We are to seek God's purposes in our trial. We are to respond in steadfast endurance, patience, and take comfort in God's sovereignty over all of it. This is hard. This is not easy. And it requires wisdom, which brings us to our second point, having wisdom in trials. Verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. Let him ask in faith, not doubting. For the doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Snake oil. Who has heard of snake oil? It's pretty common in our vernacular. Maybe you've heard of a snake oil salesman. Well, this term is actually pretty old. It comes from the 18th and 19th century from Chinese railroad workers who would bring over the oil of the Chinese water snake. And it was actually rich in omega-3s and other fatty acids. And they would rub it on their hands after a hard day of work on the, airline, on the, uh, on the train lines. And it would act as an anti-inflammatory. It seemed like magic. It seemed like it could cure anything. You've got to remember the state of modern, modern medicine. It's an undeveloped science. We're peering over the hill here saying maybe, maybe there's something in this medical science that will really benefit us. But we have no FDA. We have no standardization. And this is a hard world. And it's a world without Tylenol. They are looking for something. This led to the, rise for, to, to the rise of rattlesnake oil, which had absolutely none of these effects, and ultimately the rise of patent medicine. We had 150 years where people would sell a little, little something, a little brown liquid in a bottle and say, hey, it'll cure, cure your cancer, it'll cure, it'll cure your, your limp, it'll put hair on your head, it'll do just about anything you need it to do. See, all of this was based on a little bit of truth, right? But ultimately, these promises were vacant of true wisdom. Christian, we still live in a world full of snake oil. James is not switching gears. We are still talking about trials. When trials come, humans, not just Christians, Christians and non-Christians alike, we look for wisdom. The non-Christian looks for at least skilled living. And the world's got some answers for it, doesn't for that, doesn't it? The Romans' answer to his trials look a lot like ours, our worlds. We have money. We have the first real global currency, the denarius. You could pick up a coin in Jerusalem and spend it in Spain. That was mind-boggling back then. Real wealth, like there, there may have been wealth and trade and, and all of this in, in previous empires, but we're not seeing the, the fluidity that we see here in the Romans. We have power. We have Roman citizenship. Everybody wanted to be a Roman. And they had drugs as well. Opium had been around for thousands of years, but man, it really took off with this new budding empire, with, this new, with all these new entrenched trade routes. It's all our world. It's no different. If you had a better job, if you won the lottery, all your problems would be gone. You just need more friends, more social media influence. Man, if you just turn to drugs, illicit narcotics of some modern psychology, entertainment, just focus on these things. It'll distract you. It's all snake oil. 1 Corinthians 1.25 says, For the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. When I was putting together this second, second point, my, my, my uh, thoughts were, were uh, constantly going to the Princess Bride and this quote that is said by the Dread Pilot Roberts there at the beginning of the movie. It says, life is pain, highness. Anyone who tells you otherwise is selling you something. 
Brothers and sisters, the Christian life is trials, and anyone who tells you otherwise is selling you the snake oil of this world's wisdom. Anyone that says the answer to these trials are apart from Christ, selling you snake oil. Anyone that says that there is an easy escape apart from Christ, snake oil. And there is snake oil sold everywhere on the internet, seminars, secular media. If you have a problem, the world has a false reading of scripture and it will solve that problem for 14 easy payments of 1995. There was recently a, a 10K that was put on in uh, Austin and it was for to support legal funds for gender fluidity, for drag, for all of these things that we see cropping up. And the theme, the little, this little subtext of this, of this run was drag is love, drag is joy, drag is hope, it lifts us from the dark. Unbelievers, anyone that tells you that the things of Christ, love, joy, and hope can be found apart from Christ is selling you snake oil. God, God is the true repository of this wisdom, and we access it, we see in verse 6, through faith, through his revealed word. And we are to ask without reproach. The Greek here means to taunt, to chide. God wants us to ask. He's not going to turn around and say, hey, Joe, back here for wisdom. I gave you some wisdom last week. What did you do with that? No, he's going to, he stands like a father willing to give that wisdom over and over again. Does this mean that James is telling us to prophesy? No. This wisdom is God's revealed word, prayerfully considered and applied through the Holy Spirit's work in our life. And how blessed we are to have a completed Bible, to have God's revealed word. This is God's repository of wisdom. We foresee in 2 Timothy 3, verse 16, it is the word of God is complete, so that we may be equipped for every good work. In Jude, verse 3, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. We have God's word, and we are so blessed because of it. Verse 6, now let him ask in faith without, with no doubting. For, though, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea. It is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. We are to ask without doubting. The Greek here means to waver, to discriminate. Now, when we in English use the word doubt, we, we might say we doubt this person we doubt this news source. We doubt this institution. But in reality, what we're saying is we're wavering between two things. Thing one is this, this, this now, whatever it may be, is, is correct, is true, and thing two is not. We're wavering. We, we don't really know. Well, in this case, James is saying thing one, thing one is God's wisdom, and thing two is the wisdom of this world. And oh, how we often waver. We're to cling to God's wisdom amidst trials. And this has a couple of really important applications. We are not to live our lives as hypocrites, one day indulging in the word and the next day indulging what the world has for us. And we are not to contaminate the word with what the world's wisdom. This is what the Jews were dealing with. They were tempted to reconcile Christ with modern day Judaism or back Judaism back then. And we do this too. The health and wealth gospel will say, hey, Let's misread a couple of verses here, and God will solve all your problems. We'll make you healthy. We'll make you wealthy. We have theistic evolution. We have a little bit of science here. We have a little bit of God here. And we'll make a cocktail that will make just everybody happy. And we divide people based on the world's divisions, ethnicity, language, socioeconomic, politics, whatever it might be. Christian, our unity is in Christ and nothing else. 
And the result of this is no wisdom. Verse 7, must not suppose he will receive anything from the Lord. Also, the result is instability in all his ways. The Greek here is talking about the unstable, inconsistent, restlessness. This is so true. The hypocrisy and the blending of Scripture will never bring the peace it promises because this wisdom will not come from the Lord. It will lead to restlessness. Moreover, the world will not reward this. Sin takes no prisoners. The cultural revolution will give no quarter. And your testimony and your joy will suffer. More importantly, God will not accept this. This is a concept that's developed throughout the book of James. Chapter 4, verse 3 says, You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly. You spend it on your passions, you adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. These are strong, strong words for this type of a methodology. Christian, do we pray for wisdom during trials? Do you seek wisdom in God's trials? Are you trying to reconcile God's wisdom with the world during trials? And do you have the courage to follow God's wisdom when it's costly? Trials are hard. They require God's wisdom. But why is it worth it? That brings us to point number three, the kingdom purpose of trials. Here is where we get to James presenting us with hope. Verse 9, let the lowly brother exult in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers with the grass. Its flower fails, its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised those who love him. Again, James is not switching subjects. We see again here clearly in verse 12. And we are, we are creating a dichotomy here between two things. We have, the, we have the rich and we have the poor. But the poor has, a, has, a, has an adjective there, or not rather, rather a noun. The poor is describing the brother. We have a poor brother and we have a rich nothing. In English, we tend to port these words around. But in Greek, it's not necessarily like this. Some commentaries will take this in the direction of a wealth warning, a warning to wealthy Christians. And this is a, a biblical concept. We see this laid out in, in Luke 12, Mark 10, 1 Timothy 6, but not here. This is not what James is doing. The rich is a concept that he develops throughout the book, and we'll see that here in a bit. James is addressing the temptation of the world. He's addressing the subject that they're envying, this thing that they want to be, this rich, the poor brother and the rich. Verse 10, and the rich for his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower fails, its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Verse, 12, verse 11 points out some of the most temporal parts of nature, flowers, grass. And he likens it to this world that these Christians, that we see as so tantalizing. This is strong language. Their beauty perishes, fades away in the midst of their pursuits. This is a shot over the bow of Roman culture. In, Ro in Roman culture, you had the two deaths, one physical death, and then a second death when the last person who knew you dies. They're about legacy. They want to be around forever. They want to be like the Caesars. Maybe if it was set in our world uh, and applied directly to our world, it might say something like that person might be, be broke, might not have any friends. 
but it's so directly focused. And we see the rich here being described here in James 5, verse 1. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, your garments have been moth-eaten, your gold and your silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure, this treasure, in the last days. James says, don't be fooled. This will all pass, but your inheritance is eternal. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trouble, uh, trial, verse 12. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. But, but the lowly is to boast in his exaltation. Verse 12, this is it. The picture here is eternal reward that is set apart or set aside or, or compared to that of a, of a sporting champion in the Roman Empire wearing the reef. Remember the audience. This is a Jewish house leader near Jerusalem, full of trials. Christ was to the end. He was to end the suffering, dealing with the pressures of legalism, paganism. There's very little joy and wavering in the truth. And James says, you're missing the point. Christ came to give you a crown of life. Remember the audience, us. There is a kingdom purpose to our trials. There is hope in our suffering. The rich in our world the people who have laid up their hope and their treasures in this world are temporarily rich, but eternally they are bankrupt. Are you here today and rich in the world? James' point is not to condemn wealth, but to draw a beautiful dichotomy between the real hope we have in Christ and the tempting life of this world and the temptation of sin. Christ's work on the cross was not done to make our lives easy, but to give us hope, knowing what he is doing in us Knowing what he's doing in glory gives us a reason to rejoice in all these things. This world will fade away like grass and flowers. Are you ready for it? Or are you rich? If not, I implore you to choose the crown today. We are spiritually dead. Romans 3 said, for all, it says, for all have sinned, fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6, the wages of that sin is death. But also, Romans 6 says, the gift of God is eternal life. What is this gift? It's the gift that we find here in Philippians 2. Who, though Christ was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born like this of men, being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, spiritually rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. This can be accessed, Romans 10 said, if you Romans 10 says, if you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him, raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And I invite you to make that decision today. Please see one of the elders afterwards. We'd love to have this conversation. There is hope. Make no mistake, we are not selling snake oil. We are not inviting you to a life of ease and wealth. Providing you to a life of trials and growth, but it ends in a crown of life that will never fade. And this is the source of our ultimate joy that we see in verse 2. Christian, do we envy that which passes away? Do we live as pagan Christians, as transactional Christians, or are we steadfast, holding to that hope? Does our hope inform our perspective? Non-Christian, do you know Christ? We are not selling snake oil. Believers, trials are sure. 
The wisdom that we need during them comes from God. And all of this has a kingdom purpose. Count it as joy. Son, there are no atheists in a POW camp. I pray that someday you come to the end of yourself and you find Christ. Church, there will be no atheists when Christ returns. Everyone will come to the end of themselves and bow the knee to Christ. And on that day, James' crazy countercultural message won't be crazy at all. As the world fades like flowers and grass along with its snake oil wisdom, Christian, we will look back and we will see the purpose and necessity of our trials. We will see how wise God's wisdom was in the midst of these trials. And we will see the kingdom purpose of our trials. And at that time, our joy will be complete. Let's pray.